1: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, well, 2023 signals 100 years of Warner Brothers Studios. Kind of. So it it sort of went around in early April of 2023. Suddenly Warner Brothers was trending, and I thought, oh, they've been bought by somebody. It's like, oh wow, I didn't didn't realise they were 100 years old. So, perfect opportunity to do it. As I say, I take a piece of pop culture and reveal the real history underneath it. But this is one of these occasions, and and I do occasionally do. Podcast like this, where the pop culture is reflective of history, and indeed the story goes back more than a hundred years and tells you something about the changes in tastes in society and It's one of these things where, if you are a regular listener you know I keep referring to certain movies and you'll see how many of them are Warner Brothers as well. So it gives me an opportunity to to rattle off a whole bunch of films and I mean a lot of films. I'm not going to do their entire background because we just don't have time. Uh, but also, it I'm going to say I'm going to pick out ones that you're sitting there going, oh yeah, it's been ages since I've seen that one. That's brilliant. Or occasionally a case of, I keep hearing about that one. Maybe you should, should watch that. So I'll sort of, very very quickly tell you if they're good or bad or if they're so famous i won't bother giving you anything else around them but this is the opportunity to talk about one of the biggest movio studios in the world with a lengthy and highly lucrative and prestigious background and history so let's start with who are the warner brothers and the answer is They weren't called Warner. They were actually the Wonsel brothers, and they came from modern-day Poland. At the time, it was part of the Russian Empire. And first of all, father, Benjamin, moved to America, and a year later, mum and the four brothers all moved to America. And the year was 1889 when they arrived. This is a classic example of the... Poor Europeans coming over to America for that attempt at a better life. You know, give me your huddled masses, all to do with Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty and all that good stuff. Absolutely, the Warner Brothers were an example of that. Did they come for their political beliefs or anything like that? No. They were just in grinding poverty. And the Wansels, they were Jewish. And Jews were not well treated in the Russian Empire. I mean, sadly, I could say that about any period of history to do with Jewish populations. It is a depressing fact there. You've heard of the term beyond the pale. The pale was a region in Western Russia. And basically beyond the pale was largely where the Jewish population lived. It was a whole thing. And you could see why they might want to get out of there. So whereas there is this horrible Basically, anti Semitic cliche about, oh, yes, the entertainment industry, it's all run by the Jews. Well, it's kind of coincidence. These brothers neither came over to sort of like set up some great sort of Zionist plan or anything like that, nor did they even set up in California. So, what happened was the family set up in Pittsburgh. Incredibly industrial, unglamorous city full of great folk because my mother and her family grew up in a small town just outside of Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh on many occasions. They're nice people, but it ain't L.A. You could take that as a compliment or as an insult, quite frankly. But anyway... What was traditional with families that came over to America with perhaps hard to say names is, I mean, it was the chance to start again. And one of the things you could start again is why are we called the wonsels So they changed their name to Warner which is obviously easier to say for your average American. And indeed, the four brothers, I'm not going to bother giving you their Yiddish, because they were Jewish, Yiddish names. Instead, I'm going to call them what they wanted to be called and what they chose to be called, and that is Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack four great american names you know jack warner that's a great name you're gonna believe that this person came over with the mayflower even though he came over 20 years earlier with his jewish family so anyway what happened was they actually started off doing all kinds of odd jobs they're there to earn a living but by 1902, just past the century, into the 20th century, they'd managed to pull together enough money to do something that they thought there could be potential with. They opened up basically a movie theatre, sold tickets and distributed various people's movies. Now, obviously, at the turn of the century, these are all very short films, and it was quite revolutionary, because at that time, vaudeville theatre was still hugely popular for various reasons, but... That was their start, and by 1904, they had started to distribute films, obviously in their theatres, but they started to sort of spread them into the local area. And indeed, this is why I'm saying it's a little bit complicated as to what's going on, because by 1918, the Warner Brothers, under the name Warner Brothers, did manage to get their first nationally syndicated film. This film went out across America, and it made them money. It was called My Four Years in Germany. Here's a clip. Yeah, it's a silent movie. It's 1918. So The Four Years in Germany was obviously to do with the war, and this is the silent film era, and again, that's why vaudeville theatre was still popular, because most movies and i'm using that word in inverted commas here were maybe 15 minutes long so you'd probably watch a few of them together and they were in black and white and there was no sound so theater won in every possible way but it was a start now why has warner brothers decided to say that 2023 is the 100th anniversary when i just mentioned 1918 that's because they still weren't quite the Warner Brothers studio that we know of today. Indeed, they were still based in Pittsburgh. But by 23, they'd moved out to California. Why? Because that's where lots of the film industry was. And I've done this previously in an episode to do with Hollywood saying, basically, bright sunshine so you can film outside. Very rarely rains. Perfect. Don't need really expensive electrical lighting. So actually, a lot of these films that in theory look like they're filmed indoors were actually filmed outdoors with basically a painted set on an outside wall, but the bright Californian sunshine would make it work on that film that needed extreme illumination, and obviously that saved a fortune on electricity and energy bills. You could even say that it was green and environmentally friendly. Except the cellulose the film was actually filmed on was so dangerously explosive and flammable, you weren't allowed to take it on an airplane because it was constituted as explosives, basically. So that's a whole thing in and of itself. So sort of environmentally friendly, apart from all the burning up and, and exploding kind of stuff. 1923 is the foundation of, if you like, the modern company. Indeed, it has had several different names. And currently it is just Warner Bros. dot. That's it. It's been like that since 2019. You know, it's been incorporated and limited and pictures and so on and so forth. But it's clearly the same guys behind it. So in 23, they are now, if you like, a proper production company. They're not one of the biggest, but they very quickly get a string of hits with a star that will work for almost peanuts. How can I say that? Because their first big star that was a huge hit around the world, film after film, was a dog. (coughs) And no, it wasn't Lassie, it was Rin Tin Tin. And basically in the 1920s, Rin Tin Tin was as big as Charlie Chaplin or Errol Flynn or all the other names that you've heard of from that kind of era. How? Why? Well, Rin Tin Tin was actually a dog that had served in World War I and had basically been in France and was brought back. So there was a certain amount of interest in the dog and it turned out the dog was pretty easy to train. And, and obviously, yeah, a dog isn't going to become a prima donna. Just give it a bone every now and then. Much easier to deal with than actors. So Rin Tin Tin was, if you like, one of the signs of Warner Brothers' success for at least the first 20 years of its existence, in the sense that actually compared to the likes of Paramount or MGM, Warner productions were generally lower budget. You know, they were very much keeping the costs low, very smart thing to do, because there's then less risk. You know, nowadays you hear things like, well, for example, let's talk very, very briefly, let's fast forward basically a hundred years to Ant Man Quantum Mania. Now, in the end, that film grossed about half a billion dollars. That's a lot of money! Until you find out the film cost. 200 million. Then you also have to add advertising, and then when you, yes, you do pay your ticket to to the movie theater, but not all of that money goes back to the studio. It's cut between the two. So, in other words, the general consensus is you need to make about two and a half times the budget of the film in terms of in the cinema to break even. Now, two and a half times 200 million is 500 million, and seeing that the actual film got to about 500 million. Look, when you then start adding things like streaming revenues and sort of lunch boxes and comics and toys and so on and so forth, Ant Man 3 made a profit. But the point is, it wasn't oodles of money. Sorry to get technical with you there. It was just a tiny amount of money. However, if you make a film like The Blair Witch Project, which in total cost about $30,000 to make, it was done on a steady cam with unknown actors for basically no money whatsoever and that it sort of kick-started the found footage horror genre and it grossed more than a $100 million. So, if you start working as go, whoa, Gem, that's something like 3,000 times its original budget it's like, yeah, I know a lot of money was made over something like The Blair Witch. So, It isn't just how many people turn up to see it, it's how much it cost in the first place. And Warner Brothers was really clever about that. They used studios rather than necessarily filming on location. That's more expensive, sending people out into the desert and filming stuff. Let's try and keep it in the studio, shall we? And dogs work for a lot less than actors, as I've just said. So that's all going well. And then if you like Warner Brothers... Defines modern cinema. How can I possibly say that? Because in 1927 they create The Jazz Singer, which is the first talkie. And indeed, because it was the first one to actually have sound with it, and technically it wasn't actually the first one to have sound, but it was the first one to have running dialogue and so on and so forth the jazz singer something we can have music we could. it's the first musical which obviously is a whole genre in its own right in hollywood and you can't have a silent musical so the jazz singer has many many problems it's extremely racist it's got blackface depictions in it it is one of these films that is just almost impossible to watch from a modern audience but you can't deny its importance in the world of hollywood and history so That was the Jazz Singer in 1927, which just opens the floodgates. Suddenly everybody wants to have talkies now. And then we get into the 1930s, and between 30 and 35, it gets to be known as the Gangster Studio, doing movies about gangsters, and it's a bit dangerous. And the reason why I'm saying 30 to 35 is because this is pre-Hayes Code. What's a Hayes Code, I hear you say? And it's really interesting. Basically... There was no rating system to movies. Nowadays, I talk about how, oh, that's rated R, that's rated 18, or or whatever. You know, America and Britain have slightly different rating systems, but you all know what I mean, in the sense that, illegally, the movie has to give you an age idea to know, can I take my four-year-old to it, or can only adults go and see it in terms of content, And that just didn't exist in the 1930s. And what's interesting is I encourage you to sort of like dig out a movie from like 1931. Because you know what a black and white movie's like. Yes, except the ones made before the introduction of the Hays Code were getting darker and darker and grittier and grittier. A great example of that is the very first Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movie. That first one has a scene where Tarzan and Jane go swimming in a lake And basically, the camera shot is a long way off, but they do a shot underwater. The reason why there's a lot of swimming, by the way, in Tarzan movies from the 1930s is because Johnny Weissmuller was an Olympic swimmer, so he looked good in the water. But Jane is wearing almost nothing. And to the modern eye, seeing a black and white film clearly made in the 1930s, seeing that amount of flesh in the 1930s is almost shocking. And believe me, it shocked the censors and it shocked the authorities. And that's why we get the Hayes Code being brought in in basically 1935 saying, whoa, 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 whoa. There seems to be ever-increasing amounts of depictions of violence, be it sort of like gunplay or sort of people punching each other in fights and things like that, and the, the, the women are becoming more and more salacious, and it's like this is not decent anymore. So the Hayes Code came in. So if you look at the difference between the first Tarzan movie and basically, let's say, the third Tarzan movie, they're night and day tonally, because now the Hays Code says, in essence, every movie made Can be watched by anybody from the age of four to 94. Nobody should be offended by that. Not that the early 30s ones had bad language in it, but you can imagine, obviously, now. The topics will change, and obviously a four-year-old is perhaps not going to be interested in a gangster movie, but suddenly what I can show is now far different to what I was able to do before the code was brought in. So obviously they needed to change their style. I mean, they still did dramas and things like that, but this is where the 30s get a little bit more creative. A weird quirk, if you like, is in 1937 they picked up a radio announcer called Ronald Reagan who basically played bit roles. He he was, he was always kind of played the nice friend. He was, if you like, the decent man. Ronald Reagan was never going to be a Marlon Brando type of actor, but he was good in his roles. It wasn't that he couldn't act, but he was rather limited in his range. I love him, he's a wonderful guy, but he's such a big ham. Think of someone like John Wayne, but he never got the break of John Wayne, but then again, John Wayne never got to be the twice president of the United States, so... If you like, without Warner Brothers, maybe Ronald Reagan wouldn't have become President of the United States. The other thing that happened in the 1930s is they moved into animation, and we then get these legendary names in terms of creative directors and creators, names like Fritz Freeling, Tex Avery, and Chuck Jones. What did they create in the 30s up until... Basically, all of these animated characters were created from the mid-1930s up until 1942. So so really, in about a seven-year period, they created from scratch, from the ether of their imagination, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck. Well, uh, I, I don't know. I, uh... Don't be a sucker, chum. The next question's a snap. Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny.
0: Might I inquire to ask him What's up, Doc? I'm going to kill the wabbit!
1: And Sylvester and Tweety Pie.
0: I thought I saw a there.
1: That is amazing. And of course, all of these, a little bit later on, you get things like the Martian, Marvin the Martian, you get Tasmanian Devil. You're not thinking, oh, those ones. Yeah, they're all Warner Brothers properties. And of course, they're still around to this day. I mean, Bugs Bunny, what's interesting. Bugs Bunny first one was in 1940, during World War II, and yet he's still kind of a cool cucumber. You know, in the 21st century, 80 years later. It's just what an amazing creation there. Of course, in the 1940s, we, as I just said, were into World War II, and it was Warner Brothers that creates one of the greatest war movies or movies, Hollywood films of all time, Casablanca. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life.
0: But what about us? We'll always have Paris.
1: Also, there was Yankee Doodle Dandy, another one of these musicals, not particularly anything to do with World War II, but it was the first Warner Brothers movie where they started to sell war bonds at the start of them. And by the end of the war, Warner Brothers, through promoting of the war bonds, figuring it was their patriotic duty to do so, had managed to generate more than $20 million of sales in war bonds. Indeed, One of the Liberty ships, Liberty ships were created through the war bond process, you know, you would try to link it with things to sort of make it popular with the the public. They actually named one of the Liberty ships Benjamin Warner, the father of the Warner Brothers. What a wonderful recognition there. Plus, on top of that, and I love these statistics, 5,200 pints of blood were gathered from the basically the people who worked at Warner Brothers for the war effort. I mean, literally giving their blood, sweat and tears. And a total of 763 people from Warner Brothers Studios served in World War II. So Warner Brothers took their patriotic duty seriously. Indeed, what's interesting is by 1943, everybody at the beginning of the war, well, at the beginning of the time when America got involved in the war, for a few years war movies were hot but by 1943 if you like this there's only so many nazis you can see get shot basically there are only so many war stories that can be told and even though the war's still going on you know people get bored of them so by basically the late to 1943 the world war ii movies are starting to flop in the cinemas warner brothers continued they they were more than happy to lose money provided they kept the message alive kept it front of mind in people's minds and imaginations such an important war effort and indeed there are propaganda cartoons with the likes of porky pig and daffy duck and bugs bunny sort of like sticking it to the nazis or to emperor hirohito some of this stuff you could argue nowadays is a bit racist but it was during a war and you're not going to portray the enemy sympathetically so i will give them a pass so that was what was going on in in the 40s and obviously you get all these actors coming back in the 50s, and Warner Brothers does well in the 1950s. But this allows me to start going into, here are some of the other films. I mean, I've already mentioned a few of them. I'm not sure anybody listening to this has seen My Four Years in Germany from 1918. If you have, let me know. But The Jazz Singer, maybe you've seen that. And really, if you haven't seen Casablanca, it is just chock full of so many famous phrases. It's, it's almost a comedy now, because like, oh, that's where that line comes from, and ah, oh, I recognise that, and it's all like, well, that's because they wrote it first, it's not because they're riffing on anything in that movie so whereas, in the front half of a usual episode I will do, ah, oh, here's the pop culture, and then I move into, oh, and this is the history that it's been influenced from either deliberately or subconsciously obviously, I'm just sort of going through it, but of course if you want to make money in the Movie world, you have to give the audience what they want. So, appetites changed generally in terms of the movie going public. So, obviously, Warner Brothers had to adapt as well. So, I'm going to be going through a lot of movies now, but you can start seeing how they change and adapt. And it's weird to think, spoiler, that the studio that created Casablanca also created The Matrix you know, those are very different films, but that's because nobody could have even conceived of The Matrix during the 1940s. So, if you like, it is a reflection of society, but of course, sometimes society tries to reflect, like the fashions from a movie, a particular movie star, people might want their hair cut or something. So, it is really interesting to me how art imitates life and life imitates art and you get this kind of circular feedback loop as we go along so in the 1960s we can start seeing i mean something like the jazz singer was revolutionary it could have flopped hard as was pointed out in a movie i once watched about silent movies it's like they were popular because you made one film and then all you had to do is change the inter you know in between each scene there's like a couple of lines of dialogue so you know what's going on And so that was really easy to change if you were going to send it to Russia or Japan or France. So even though it's made in America, you could very easily, it'd cost almost nothing to change it into all these different languages. However, as soon as you've got an entire soundtrack, you're going to need other dubbers and things like that. I think it's lovely that when any of the studios, not just Warner Brothers, when their movie stars went abroad... To let's say Spain or Italy or Germany, they would absolutely make sure that they would get photos of the movie star, let's say John Wayne, standing next to the local actor who would voice that person. And indeed, in some countries, the actor who voiced, again, John Wayne, would be as famous as John Wayne, even though that was their main gig and they had nothing to do with the making of the movie. It's really interesting to me that sort of like element that nowadays just doesn't exist definitely because of netflix well like i say i'm more than happy to listen to a dub on an animated show anything in a foreign language that's live action i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business
0: was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me
1: And I can't watch a dub. I have to watch subtitles. So if you like, we've done a full loop as we're back to title cards, if you like, back in the silent era, because I'm sitting there busy reading the bottom of the screen. So let's get into the 60s, where there's more revolution, if you like. There's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? And this sort of similarly rhythmically named Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? There's Bonnie and Clyde. And there's Cool Hand Luke. So if you like, just, just pausing on all four of those at the moment, the 1960s, this is the time when we start getting the counterculture, when we get this new, young, baby boomer generation, the people born basically in World War II or just after World War II are now getting into their 20s, starting to get jobs, starting to save and earn money, starting to have opinions and not liking the kind of buttoned-down older generation. And so we get these movies that are, well, particularly in the case of Cool Hand Luke, it's just dripping with anti-authoritarian stuff. There's the famous speech there about what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Never! Never! What
0: we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: So, you know, it's it's... If you like summarising the disconnect between the younger generation and the older generation, then we've got the sort of the more method acting, the sort of like more gritty, ugly acting. People are ugly crying rather than Grace Kelly in the 50s, where you get a glycerin tear slowly dribbling down her cheek, but she still looks stunningly beautiful. Not like that in something like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Or something like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? You've got a different type of acting coming in, but you still want to please everybody you still got the countercultures parents going to the movies cuz what everybody did on a friday or a saturday and so you get my fair lady an absolutely classic musical again or gypsy another musical again you know these were huge huge hits at the time and also they were critically well reviewed as well If you want a bit of silly fun, let's go back to World War II, shall we? Let's have Battle of the Bulge, where you've got Donald Sutherland basically playing a hippie in the 1940s, and it makes no sense, and it is historically a mess, and almost none of the Battle of the Bulge happens the way it's portrayed in the movie. But it was a hit, and people found it fun. Then you've got something like The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah, the sort of a revisionist western, and we're going to be getting a few revisionist westerns as we go along, extremely bloody, showing a type of armament that was historically accurate, but not the kind of armaments and weapons that you would normally see, again, in a kind of John Wayne film. And then a film I've done, I've mentioned before, Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know, again, that's all about anti-authoritarian, pushing against the the man and against authority and the police in this case. It is historically completely inaccurate. You've got Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty looking utterly gorgeous. And when they get gunned down at the end of the movie, you are appalled. You, you feel that this is an absolute terrible crime. Even though we're talking about two people who murdered a whole bunch of people, not just police officers, but civilians as well, and ran an actual crime syndicate. So, yeah, couldn't have to a nicer couple, but that is not the way it was built or portrayed on this particular occasion. So, there we go. The 60s were starting to get into sort of... interesting. By the way, if I did not mention your favourite Warner Brothers movie from any of these decades, I'm sorry... This would be a very long episode if I mentioned all of them. But I'm giving you, if you like, sometimes I'm going to give you edited highlights. Sometimes I'm going to talk about a few flops and turkeys as well. And also while we're at it, don't forget, click subscribe. If you could leave a review, it takes two seconds to click five stars. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Please, please. And also... We do two episodes a week, one on a Tuesday, one on a Thursday. I have to get a lot of these out nowadays. Always happy to listen to your thoughts on an episode just gone. Or maybe you want to me to do an episode on a thing. I'm at Jem on Twitter. There we go. This one, by the way, was recommended by the editor, Greg. Oh my God, it's a dream. Then we move into the 1970s and we actually get THX 1138. Now... You have to be quite the geek if you know what THX 1138 is. But that was a guy called George Lucas's first ever movie. And he has... It's actually a dystopian film starring Robert Duvall. And like a lot of George Lucas's films, he's gone back and he's actually added stuff to it. But it was visually incredibly striking. There was these men in, in police uniforms with these mirrored masks to be sort of sinister and fascist, if you like. It's a classic totalitarian dystopian future type story done on a shoestring budget and you can see the ambition there right there in that film that would eventually lead a few years later to star wars now the thing about star wars is it wasn't picked up by warner brothers but the thing is george lucas loves it so much that the little code thx 1138 appears all over his star wars movies so if you like the original trilogy and the prequels, you can spot it all over the place once you know what you're looking for. So that's probably one of the most influential movies on this entire list. We got Clute, Donald Sutherland again. This is a detective movie, very big hit for the time. They had Stanley Kubrick, who in the 70s, well, I'll I'll mention a couple of them, but we got Clockwork Orange, obviously. We got Barry Lyndon a little bit later on. We got Dirty Harry. Now, I'm only going to mention Dirty Harry once, just like a number of these properties, they spawn sequels. And so what's interesting is that the very last Dirty Harry movie called The Deadpool, not to be confused with Deadpool, came out in 1989. By then, Clint Eastwood was showing his age, but it was actually quite a big hit. Because it had the trailer for Batman 1989 out with it. So it's the first chance for us to see the full trailer for the Batman movie. And so everybody went to see this rather creakingly old, which started in the 1970s. Now the last one's coming out in 1989. But it should be remembered that Dirty Harry was, I mean, a lot of people accuse it of being sort of fascistic and, you know, extremely white right wing and so on and so forth. And yeah, it is. It's kind of a sort of power fantasy But it's a really good film. It's a really good revenge film. And if you like it, it didn't, necessarily invent all these things but it absolutely set it in stone the classic thing of like i'm gonna hand in my badge because you won't let me do what i gotta do and that is still being used you know into the 21st century with something with a more thoughtful drama like mayor of east town for heaven's sake she's still got kate winslet handing in a badge now she doesn't quite go dirty harry although she does have a gunfight after she's handed in a badge but yeah but you've got clint eastwood and it's for the record that's the one which has the talk about did i fire only five six or did i fire six
0: i know what you're thinking did he fire six shots or only five well to tell you the truth in all this excitement i've kind of lost track myself but ian this is a 44 magnum the most powerful handgun in the world and would blow your head clean off you've got to ask yourself one question do i feel lucky well do
1: you punk not go ahead make my day that came in one of the sequels one of the lesser versions of dirty harry we've got deliverance that classic kind of survival horror movie which brought to the world burt reynolds pre-mustache it must be reminded and we're starting to see also again warner brothers does take risks here Enter the Dragon. Now, for the record, some of these movies are joint productions, and this is a classic example of that. Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee's last studio-completed movie, which came out just a couple of weeks after he actually died, was a huge hit. And obviously, we've now got an Asian man as the central star in a Hollywood co-created movie. We've got Badlands. We've got The Exorcist, which some people see as the absolute pinnacle of horror. And indeed, we're going to see horror keep cropping up again and again. Uh, Now, I didn't bother putting it into any of the generations because there's been so many reboots. I'm just going to mention in passing, Halloween is not a Warner Brothers, but Friday the 13th is. And that spawned a whole bunch of different sequels and reboots and prequels and all the other stuff. We've got, again, let's keep everybody happy, Towering Inferno. You've got Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, and that's about as big a star as you could get in the mid-1970s. Uh, I've mentioned Barry Lyndon. We've also got All the President's Men. You know, still in the same decade of the Watergate scandal, we've now got the movie about the Watergate scandal. It was a huge, huge hit at the time. You know, it was nominated for loads of Oscars. It was one of these things that was big in the box office and the critics adored it. But I'm going to say now, it's not that it's aged badly, but of course everybody that went to see that just a few years after more Watergate, the entire audience knew the story. Whereas if you know nothing about Richard Nixon, Watergate, you actually have to do a bit of homework before you can watch that movie. And then another film in the 1970s that really sets up Warner Brothers and indeed starts redefining where we are in cinema today is towards the end of the decade we get the Christopher Reeves Superman. So that was the start of the relationship between Warner Brothers and DC. Eventually Warner Brothers would buy DC, which means that nowadays in the 21st century, any Batman movie, anything like that, anything DC related, of course, is going to be made by Warner Brothers. And as I've said on numerous other episodes in passing, obviously DC hasn't had as consistent series of hits as Marvel, but I will always say this. Marvel wins overall in terms of box office, although I've done a whole episode about how that's beginning to go off the boil over the last few years with Phase 4. But there can be no doubt that when DC creates something impressive, it creates something really impressive. There's only been two sort of well, let's say there's only been two movies with comic book characters that ended up winning Oscars for the actors. Both of those people were playing the Joker. So, there we go, I, like I said, I've done a whole episode, and you can see how much of Warner Brothers I have not mentioned from the 1970s, The Godfathers, they didn't have all the hits, they also didn't have Jaws, they didn't have Steven Spielberg at this time either. So, yeah, Warner Brothers missed out on some stuff, I, uh, but the thing is, if Warner Brothers disappeared tomorrow, I'm going to lose a lot of the films I love, and maybe you will too. So let's move on to the 1980s. Let's jump in there with another Kubrick and another horror classic. You know, basically, horror aficionados are going to say the greatest horror movie ever is either The Exorcist or The Shining Here's Johnny <laughs> And both of those are Warner Brother movies. Now you may prefer the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, good for you, but you're gonna find it hard to get sort of critics to start saying, Ah, oh, you know, the Exorcist isn't all that good and nor's the Shining. We got Chariots of Fire, we got Blade Runner, we got Twilight Zone the movie. Scary and sort of directed by Steven Spielberg. They go into comedy. There were other comedies as well, but by now here's one that you've all heard of, National Lampoon Vacation. They do gremlins, and in the 80s, a little bit like we started seeing in the 70s, we're seeing more and more people of colour getting involved in terms of the making of these films. So the next example is Purple Rain, hugely risky. It's like, oh yeah, this guy who is an amazing musician, let's get him to write and star in a film. Now, people may buy his albums, but is anybody going to come and see him in a movie? Turns out, yes, by the truckload. Purple Rain was not only a monster hit for an, as an album, it was monster hit as an actual movie as well. And Warner Brothers has their own music label, and Prince was on that. So you got an example of... We can process the album and promote the album through the movie, and the movie can also promote the album, and it's like, oh my god, this is... And, you know, in the, maybe in the album we can point out that it's now a major motion picture, and just everything circles around itself, and we make more money. So, going from the utter glitter and fun of Purple Rain, let's get to about as serious as it gets, and I'm going to like, be a bit dark for a couple of these color purple. So now we got Spielberg directing. This was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, didn't actually win any, starring sort of Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. And again, it, it's centralized around people of color. Then also we've got Killing Fields. Again, story of non-Caucasian people, the story of the Cambodian genocide, an absolutely powerhouse of a film it's almost too powerful it's almost depressing well it is depressing to watch but it's almost impossible to watch the the sheer cruelty because they got it 100 percent right and accurate let's go back to musicals little shop of horrors let's go back to the horrors of war full metal jacket you know you got more kubrick there you got the lost boys you got beetlejuice you've got driving miss daisy So again, you know, a reference to sort of like racism and things like that. But Driving Miss Daisy is, again, one of those films that doesn't really exist anymore. Critically, at the time, acclaimed. Actually saying something about society, but also big hit as well. And let's talk about them. Lethal Weapon. Yes, so that means all the Lethal Weapon sequels in late 80s and into the 90s. They're obviously coming through Warner Brothers as well. And Batman 1989, which I've already mentioned and I've talked about a bunch of times before let's jump into the 90s and we kick off right at the beginning in 1990 with goodfellas one of the greatest gangster movies of all time from the studio that used to i mean basically about 60 years earlier used to be known as the gangster studio it's almost like the gangster film has come home so then we've got memphis bell a great world war ii film kind of forgotten basically about a bomber crew in in world war ii in in europe Then Bonfire of the Vanities. Now, you might not have heard of this, but this was a huge, huge hit of a book and a classic thing to do in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s as if it was a big hit as a book. Let's turn it into a movie. But the great thing about Bonfire of the Vanities is the film itself was a complete mess. It's possibly the worst big budget film that Tom Hanks has ever made. Bruce Willis is in it. Basically, there is a whole book about how this film was such a colossal misfire called The Devil's Candy and I absolutely recommend you read that so yeah, Warner Brothers did not get it right every time. Then we got Robin Hood Prince of Thieves I hate that film, I've done a whole podcast on it but the point cannot be denied it was a monster hit and of course there was that song connected to it You know it's true Everything i wonder who published that could it be warner brothers by any chance then the last boy scout let's get a bruce willis film that's great that was called at the time die hard 2.5 because it really was like another die hard movie and it was sweary and violent and it was awesome and i love the last boy scout then also let's do another quick flop because i had when do you get to say these names there's a there's a sci-fi film called free jack I encourage you if you if you think I'm making this up, do a Google search on it. Freejack starred the then very hot Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger, yeah the lead singer of the Rolling Stones and Anthony Hopkins, who had actually filmed this rather bad sci-fi film before silence of the lambs but he'd just won an oscar for silence of the lambs as dr hannibal lecter and so you got an oscar winner a sort of like multi-platinum grammy winning singer and emilio estevez and there is a reason why you have not heard of free jack i actually saw it in the cinema it is awful so the quickly moving on unforgiven the way clint eastwood said goodbye to all his cowboy characters in that monumental Oscar winning movie. Amazing. Malcolm X. Look, we got Spike Lee now doing a biopic about that controversial civil rights Muslim activist Malcolm X starring Denzel Washington. Amazing. Falling Down, Michael Douglas in this incredibly morally complex quagmire of a movie. If you haven't seen Falling Down ever, it's not a fun film. It's an amazing film. It will make you start thinking about it where To begin with, you will probably see the point of view of the main protagonist, and by the end of it, it's like, oh my God, does that make me a bad person? Really interesting film. Then we got Demolition Man. I haven't mentioned some of the Stallone movies, not of the bi- his biggest known films from the 1980s, but some of them, like Over the Top. But I've got to mention Demolition Man. It probably his best movie from the 1990s, and it's a really slick action film. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, yeah, Interview with the Vampire. Nobody wanted Tom Cruise to play Lestat, even including the author of the book Interview with the Vampire. And then. The movie came out and he, the author actually put in a whole page advert in Variety basically saying how sorry she was and absolutely he was perfect and he was amazing in it. Space Jam. How can I mention not mention that one? It was basically all of Warner Brothers' properties with the hottest, greatest sports person of all time, Michael Jordan, in it. Is it a great movie? No. Is it just glorious popcorn? Yes, absolutely. And let's do L.A. Confidential, an amazing movie. It's period drama there. we got Devil's Advocate, the Keanu Reeves in the courtroom uh, versus Al Pacino, who's the devil. The Matrix, I've already mentioned this, and let's do a comedy as well, analyse this. Well, I've just mentioned Al Pacino. Let's do Robert De Niro in a really good comedy. Into the 2000s, don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way up to now, but into the 2000s, just uh, a a couple of other weird ones that start off. we got Romeo Must Die, which was one of the early Hollywood Jet Li movies really didn't work because basically Jet Li found out that the Chinese community didn't want him to actually be in a romantic relationship with the mixed-race woman and so Romeo must die, but Romeo doesn't do any smooching with the girl, which really diminishes the whole point of the movie. But it is a good sort of like action martial arts movie, and showing Hollywood that Jet Li was streets ahead action wise and choreography of anything that you could do in Europe or America. And the other thing I'm going to mention from the early 2000s, Battlefield Earth, the John Travolta colossal Uber bomb, which was a sort of Scientology movie, and. I'm not going to say anything more about that, except it cost a fortune and nobody went to see it. We got Miss Congeliality, you know, really fun film. Not going to say it's a, it's amazing or anything like that. We got back to Denzel Washington, mentioned him in Malcolm X. There he is winning an Oscar in Training Day. Amazing, again, sort of like gritty, urban, police procedural thriller type thing. Harry Potter, I'll just say that once, Yeah. All of those films and Fantastic Beasts through Warner Brothers, so it was a license to print money throughout the early 2000s. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, again, low budget, but big hit comedy-wise, that worked well. I'm going to mention Insomnia. That's the second Christopher Nolan movie, also starring Al Pacino. And so we're now into the Christopher Nolan era. Last Samurai, Tom Cruise, really good period piece about samurai and an American who goes there during the Meiji Restoration. House of Flying Daggers, we're into the wuxia kind of martial arts type movies, where again, this is obviously a co-production with China. Utterly beautiful movie, and again, showing that Warner Brothers isn't willing to just deal with white guys in white situations. We've got The Polar Express, which has slowly become a bit of a winter classic, even though it's terrifying animation. And then I'm going to mention Batman Begins. Yes, I've already mentioned another Batman movie, but of course, if I mention Batman Begins and I mention Nolan, that means the Dark Knight is also going to be there. Inception's going to be there. So you can see, oh my goodness, you know, Warner Brothers is really making a huge impact in these situations and creating some extreme quality in the comic book genre. And just to back that up, V for Vendetta as well. The Departed. An amazing film with an amazing cast. Possibly the the most recent great gangster film. American Sniper, one of the biggest grossing R-rated movies ever. 300? Done a whole episode on it. Beowulf, back to the whole Polar Express. Let's also do an animated movie about the first book or story written in old Anglo-Saxon English, which started the English language. Yeah, that sounds like it might be something that people want to go and see. Not really. <laughs> Slumdog Millionaire, Watchman, and right at the end, just before 2010 comes in, Sherlock Holmes, the one that stars Robert Downey Jr., directed by Guy Ritchie, just oodles of fun and got a sequel as well. Just going to mention, sort of like moving a little bit closer to time, Warner Brothers hasn't lost their touch in terms of low budget horror. Things like The Conjuring and Annabelle, they're all Warner Brothers. And the Hangover series, also Warner Brothers. Now, as I said, DC and the rise of Sony and the rise of Disney and things like that have meant that Warner Brothers recently, and I mean really recently, like sort of COVID era onwards, hasn't really been doing very well. But. When you look at what they've done, and when you look at the risks they've taken, I got no doubt they'll get back into the saddle. Everybody's allowed a little bit of a lull. After all, this was the people that managed to make Battle of the Bulge, which was not very good, and Battlefield Earth, okay? So we're all allowed to make mistakes, but you can see I have a huge amount of love for Warner Brothers. I bet you do, too. I would love to hear, yeah, you know, on Twitter or whatever, what are your favourite Warner Brother movies of the ones I've mentioned or was there one that I didn't mention you thinking, Jem, that's the one for me? Good. Great. Let's share the love. Let's share our favourites. You know, what do you make of Bugs Bunny and stuff like that? Has anybody got, you know, some t shirts with like Yosemite Sam on them or, or whatever? So that's the way I'm going to leave it, and as always, another episode coming soon.